What a glorious sight that just was. Be up here and looking at all of you, praising the Lord with all of your hearts. We get to do that forever. Isn't that something amazing? Wow, wow, wow. Well, how many of you have something to be thankful for? Shoot your hands way up. How many of you felt crowd pressured? (laughs) Sometimes it's easy, isn't it, to be thankful. It's just obvious the way things are going in our life. But maybe more often, it isn't as easy or even counterintuitive based on the circumstances. Sometimes we've forgotten what we have. Maybe we're unaware. Maybe there's some people here this morning that I don't even know why these people are so thankful. I don't, I don't even know what this is all about. So if you were to put, be put on the spot immediately and say, give me one thing you're thankful for. Now everybody's going to look down. I don't want them to ask. Don't ask me. Would you be able to quickly say something you were thankful for? I like it when I'm down here on the floor, you know? There's more action. How about this one? The Apostle Paul said, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I'm guessing that no one would have had that as something to be thankful about. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians, please? Colossians chapter 1. We're not even out of the first chapter of Colossians, and we have been feasting on God's truth in amazing ways. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. Now, by the way, the context of Paul's statement, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, is from the context of being in prison. This this letter of thanksgiving, this letter of joy, this letter of rejoicing, is from a man in prison. But then I got thinking, it's, it's more than prison. Because when you read at the very end of the letter, he says, remember my chains. This is a guy, not only in prison, but chained up, confined. I I can't even imagine, to be honest, being confined in chains. I couldn't stand it when we were confined to our house. There's something very wrong with us, I know that. Certainly me. In spite of his circumstance, in fact, because of his circumstance, what was suffered for you. Well, let's look at the text. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And by the way, this first verse is one of the hardest verses to translate or understand or interpret in the Bible. But we'll take a shot at it. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints." 
To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We ask that you might reignite our hearts with an awareness of what we have that we might be truly grateful people. Lord, I pray that our hearts may soar this morning as we are encouraged by your word, that we might be thankful and that we might represent this joy in our lives to everyone around us, that they might see the hope of glory living in us, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we know that the Colossians were being pushed around. They were threatened. Possibly, many of them were losing their jobs because they would not comply with the way things were supposed to be. Many of them were no doubt losing their family standing because they had turned to Jesus Christ and away from the way they previously were living. And here Paul seeks to encourage them in the gospel work, encourage them so that they might not lose their convictions for Christ, that they might know who they were, and that we might know who we are, that we might know what we have, that we might know what we believe, and that we might know in whom we believe, so that our sadness will be replaced by great joy. That was what he was seeking to do with them. So that they could trade despair for thanksgiving. That's the encouragement of today. And so I want to pick out here this morning for you three really amazing realities to fire up thanksgiving in you. Three amazing realities to fire up thanksgiving in you. I think we all know, if we serve the living Christ, that this is war. We are in a war. We are constantly in a battle. And Paul points that out in terms of using terms like afflictions, the afflictions that I have, the suffering that I am facing for you, for the gospel. But here's what he rejoices in. There is profound gain to the pain of pushing back the darkness. And if we're to be encouraged in this war, we need to embrace this. We need to accept this, that there is gain to the pain of pushing back the darkness. 
And he was seeing it in their lives. We are battling life in a fallen world, a world that is in opposition to what we believe. That wickedness doesn't go quietly into the good night. It does not. It puts up a fight. Evil messes with everything, and it refuses to give up, hold. The principalities and forces, spiritually, that are arrayed against God and against everything about God and his people, about you, that are arrayed against you, that are arrayed against the message of the gospel, are constantly placing us in battle. And suffering for being good always seems odd to us, but it is the way it is. Now, if you're suffering for your own foolishness, that's, that's another story. That's not what we're talking about today. We are not talking about suffering for your own bad choices. We are talking about suffering because you have chosen to serve Christ with all of your heart. That's what Paul is talking about here. So let's break down what this kind of suffering really is in this kind of difficult verse. In what, in what are they suffering? What is Paul particularly suffering? He's suffering persecution and pain for intentionally ministering to the people of God. That's what he says. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I've been ministering the gospel. Paul makes a direct connection between his suffering and their benefiting from the gospel. And for him, that's an encouragement to his life. He can be in chains and be encouraged. The more you are doing in serving the Lord, the more you are acting like Christ, the more you will be treated like him. And we all know the story of Jesus Christ and what happened to him. So in what? Suffering persecution for ministering to God's people. Why? Because there is a dark hold of evil on this fallen humanity. Stirring up souls to consider the rescue of Jesus Christ in salvation stirs up all kinds of trouble in hell. All hell breaks loose. Because the gospel is entirely opposed. Evil forces want to keep people enslaved in sinfulness and despair and destruction and death. Hell does not want to give up his hold on people. And we know this. Sometimes the battle feels very thick in this room. It's palpable. You know this in, in your own ministries, that you feel the uphill fight. Every inch is a battle for the truth with your families, with your kids. The forces fighting against you are, are felt. They, you know them. And, and it, it grabs at you at some times, makes you, why don't I just give up on all this? Why don't I just back off and it would be so much easier? Here's Paul, his chains rattling as he's writing this. No, I will not give up. I will not give up my suffering. In fact, I'm rejoicing in it. I am, I am rejoicing back at hell for the privilege that I have 
to share the gospel truth with you. For whom? Paul says, for you, for the sake of the salvation mission of the church. And notice, this is, this is something that kind of gets overlooked in this section. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. We never think about that. We never realize that God isn't simply allowing opposition in our life as a random, annoying thing. It's actually purposeful. What Satan means for bad, God turns for good in your life. Paul here is talking about the afflictions that are still needed in his life that he might increasingly be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. I accept from the Lord. This is why I rejoice. He says, I rejoice in all of this hassle because number one, it's working its way into your lives and salvation is coming to you and for that I rejoice. But if that isn't enough, I rejoice as well in what God is allowing to happen to me because my life is being more transformed into the image of Christ. The afflictions that I still yet need to fill up what God yet wants to do in me. Lord, bring it on. None of us, I, I'm not hearing that. I'm not hearing an amen shout, oh yes, Lord, afflictions, yes. We don't have to ask the Lord for afflictions. They will come. What we need to be encouraged about is in those afflictions, it's not a waste. It's not just annoying. It's not just trouble in your life. God is actually using these afflictions, and he talks about them as Christ's afflictions. Christ's afflictions mean these are the afflictions that Christ is joining in with me. I'm not alone in this. Christ is there with me. Christ is feeling it with me. Just like when Paul himself, when he was Saul, was on the road to Damascus and heard that voice from heaven say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus was already in heaven. Saul was persecuting Christians. Christ was identifying with afflicted Christians. So, this is why Paul is overcome with rejoicing. When he encompasses all of what's going on in this, he's like, count me in. Because God is doing an amazing work in my life. So the verse might be easier to comprehend if the translators of the NIV had have chosen just to make a couple of tweaks, not change any of the words, but just change the order a little bit to this. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions in my flesh for the sake of his body, which is the church. Because some people, in fact, a whole, the largest Christian denomination in the world 
has taken this as Christ's afflictions are not yet accomplished in fullness. But we know that this, what Christ has paid for us is entirely sufficient. It's the afflictions that are yet necessary for Paul or for you or for me that we're talking about here. Okay? We die with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And we will share in the sufferings of Christ. That's how this works. Secondly, next verse, for I have become its servant, servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Stop there. The profound responsibility of being entrusted as stewards of the word of God. Why do I rejoice? Why am I thankful today? Why are you thankful today? God has entrusted you to be stewards of the word of God. Now, Paul, in verse 23, calls himself a servant. Steward, servant, we'll talk about the word in a few months. His, his talks in verse 23 of being a servant of the gospel. Now, in verse 25, he's talking about being a servant of the church. And the church is a servant of its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Yes? as stewards of God's word. So, note this, the church is ministerial, never magisterial. Another issue with the largest Christian denomination in the world. The church is ministerial, never magisterial. We minister the word of God, we don't preside over the word of God. We don't make statements to adjust the word of God, to change the implications of the word of God as the church being the head and Christ being subject to the church. No, no, no. We have been given a commission in the same way that Paul has to present to you, to present to each other the word of God. And I love the phrase that follows it. In its what? Fullness. The stewardship, the word here literally stewardship or house management of God's affairs in the world. Namely, the guardianship of God's word in this world. That's our role. That's what we've been given the responsibility to do. We are guardians of the truth in its fullness given to us by God and commissioned to us to be the stewards of that. Churches, people are not authorized to stray, to edit, to tamper with, to leave out. We are stewards, not those who capitulate to the culture. When you capitulate to the culture, you become a steward of the culture, not a steward of the word of God. There's plenty of stewards of the culture. Not many stewards of the word of God. 
We are not a selection committee. We are not an editorial team. We bring to people the word of God. That's the problem with progressivism. I settle decisions of my heart every time by defaulting to God's word, every single time. Even when my heart wants to stray to compassion or kindness or whatever, I always bring it back and square it with the default of the word of God. Because that's our commission. We're to be guardians of the truth. It's to ch we're to invite it to challenge us, to judge us, to convict us, to convince us, to confirm us, to encourage us, to be the food that grows us, to be the food that strengthens us, that strengthens our spiritual immune system. Calvary Baptist Church is called to be a fine spiritual dining experience, Pastor Nick. That's who we are. That's who we are in the region. A fine dining spiritual experience. A fine spiritual dining experience. Not cheap junk food. I was reading about a big successful denomination across North America that sort of jumped out of the gate in the 70s. It's in Christianity Today this, this month. The art, article was featured. And the quote in the article said this, with, was a church leader of this group. My generation had this idea back in the 70s that if we could make church easy, make being a Christian easy, we could get more people to say yes to Jesus. And it was enormously successful. But we made it too easy, and they became consumers of church. When you tamper with the fullness of God's word, you're not doing God's work. <laughs> they said this, uh, we pretty much had a clear vision. We wanted a church that we could stand. Mostly that meant guitars and worship and everyone wearing jeans. I have no problem with that. Here's what I have a problem with. We fulfilled our vision on our first Sunday. That's a lofty vision that you can fulfill in one Sunday with jeans and a guitar, Nick. the profound responsibility of being entrusted as stewards of the word of God, to know the purpose of God in Christ. That's what he says here, that we would know the purpose of God, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations that God has chosen to make known, the urgency of knowing how to belong to God, how to be right with God, what God has done in salvation to make it possible. To be a finishing school for souls. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ or complete in Christ. 
We agonize. Paul says, we agonize. I labor, struggling with all his energy. Twice he uses that term, struggling. I struggle in verse two, 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. Be a finishing school for souls that you would be strong and rooted in the faith of Christ, that nothing would be able to move you. And then he goes on to say, and here's why, verse 4, chapter 2, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Do not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. I can't believe all of the exegetical and interpretive gymnastics that are being done today to argue away 2,000-year-old bedrock faith truths and 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 the creativity is 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 beyond uh, beyond belief in fact if that creativity would be poured into actually interpreting the scriptures the way they really are then something would be accomplished the creative work that's being done to explain away things that are so they don't seem to be the way they are is troubling and you will fall for fine-sounding arguments unless you are firmly and richly grounded in the truth. Because it's subtle. Um, Kevin DeYoung, if you know that name, has written an outstanding paper on this very thing about the drift away from the truth. He talks about um, the first signs of drifting from the truth are when you go silent on issues about the truth or that may conflict with the truth. First is silence. The second, it's a big word, Complexification. Complexification. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing silence in churches about things, and then we see complexification. And the complexification means simply this. Well, that subject has a lot of different moving parts to it, and I don't find myself qualified to talk about it. And it goes on from there. This is what Paul's talking about. Fine-sounding arguments that war against the truth. Well, the third is this. Found in verse 27 and following. To them, meaning to those currently hearing the gospel, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The profound privilege of having the hidden mystery of God disclosed to us. What is this hidden mystery? Well, for 6,000 4,000, 8,000 years, however long you understand humanity to be, and I'm not accepting it any longer than that. That's just me. 
Now it's me in a lot. It's me in the Bible. No, it's just me. People have been wondering, how is God going to reconcile this mess to himself? How, how is God going to How is God going to do this? This, this mess. And the answer didn't, wasn't uh, brought to them during the Old Testament times. And, and here's all these Jews chirping at the Colossian Christians, all right? Pushing them around, telling them they don't know the truth, they don't have it. And Paul makes this statement. It's to this generation, meaning the one that when Christ came, it's to this generation that God has revealed how he's going to reconcile the world to himself. And he took the message primarily to the Gentiles. Now, it, that, that rattled a few cages in Colossians, for sure. But these people were feeling very insecure about themselves, and Paul says, oh, don't you feel insecure? You are the ones that by God's grace have received the mystery that God is reconciling the world to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has demonstrated to that generation and to the, all the generations following how God could both be just and merciful and bring people to himself, reconcile people to himself. Because we all know that sin is a death sentence. That because people have rebelled against God, have turned away from him, they face the penalty of death. And so humanity cries out, oh God, be merciful to me. At least some do. Lord God, be merciful to me. The justice of God, though, demands a payment for that rebellion against God. If there's no payment, then God is not just. And God, if he's not just, has lied to us about his character. But God has also declared himself to be merciful, full of mercy, long-suffering, patient. Aren't you thankful? So how could God both be just and merciful? This is the mystery. This is the hidden mystery. This is the mystery revealed now, entrusted to the church, entrusted to us. The great prize of the mystery of God is Christ, the wisdom of a sinless God coming to sacrifice himself, not for his own sin, because he had no sin. Therefore, he was free to sacrifice for you and for me and thereby fulfill the justice of God because there was a payment for our sin. And because there is justice, God is free to be merciful to us in Christ Jesus. So both the justice of God and the mercy of God meets at the cross in the Son of God. That's the mystery that's been entrusted to the church. How could God reconcile us to himself? This is how Christ Jesus, and the only way 
that we could be reconciled to him. Being awakened, the great joy is being awakened to this. Make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is now Christ in us, being awakened to manifested, revealed, that's what the word here is, to the supremacy of Christ in whom are all God's treasure of wisdom and knowledge, particularly the true wisdom of faith in Jesus Christ. Those who embrace that wisdom that through Christ they will be saved. Reconciliation with God. And then being gifted. If all of that isn't enough, for every day of our lives, being gifted with the indwelling presence of Christ Jesus in you. So when, wherever you are, Paul could be in chains, he's in chains, and he's rejoicing. Why? Because dwelling in him is the living Christ. He's not alone. He's entirely experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ. Christ in him, the hope of glory. His chains didn't look like glory. The prison didn't look like glory. His particular circumstances didn't look anything like glory. His future did not look glorious. Except for one glorious reality. And that is Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord, living in him, proof of the hope of glory. Proof that where Christ is, I will be also. Where Christ goes, I go. Where Christ spends eternity, I spend eternity. You spend eternity. If our Christ is in heaven today, and the same Christ dwells in us, we are promised to be with him forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. We know that if we have Christ, we have eternal life. We have the hope of glory. There's no question in our minds. Paul did not measure the value of his life or even the joy of his life by the success of his present situation ever. But by the sure hope of his eternal future, because he had Christ, and Christ had him. Is that true of your life this morning? God in us is taking us with him into his eternal glory, regardless of what's happening in your life. So we have every right and every expectation, and every responsibility, and every obligation to be the most thankful people on the face of this globe. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. Our Father and our God, we praise you this morning. We love you. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. What an amazing mystery. How would you reconcile the world to yourself? And you have revealed it to us and gifted us with it in Christ Jesus, in whom we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go forth into the rest of our Thanksgiving weekend, just a couple of 
challenges for you. As I challenge myself from this exhortation from Paul, you know, have I full confidence in the Word of God in its fullness? When it comes to a decision, do I choose God's Word every time over my will, my desire, my feelings? my emotions because I am very grateful and I know you are that we are guardians of the truth of God in this world and the second is this what is most noticeable in your life to other people the beatdown of your circumstances, or like Paul in prison, chained, rejoicing in the truth that in him was Christ, the hope of glory. We are entrusted as stewards, walking advertisements of hope because of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So let's spend the rest of this Thanksgiving weekend for sure and on demonstrating in our lives the hope of Christ. Because the promise here is God, God in us is taking us to be with him for all eternity. That's what we get to rejoice in and be thankful for. God bless you all. Have a great weekend.